morning and uh, welcome to week four in a series that we've been doing on this uh, on this Old Testament book, the book of Jonah. And let me just say that if you are a uh, guest with us this morning, if this is your first time here, thanks so much for being here. And uh, like I said, we've been going through the book of Jonah now. This is our fourth week. And, uh, and so if you missed those previous conversations and if there's any point today I say anything that's of interest to you and you'd like to go back and check out the previous weeks of the series, I would encourage you to do that. You can, you can go back onto our website um, or you can go onto our app or to the uh, iTunes store and check out our podcast. You can listen to the previous message in the series. All of that is for free. And so like I said, I would encourage you to do that, especially if you're a person who's vaguely familiar with the book of Jonah or even if you're a person who's kind of skeptical about the book of Jonah. Uh, for some of you, maybe the only thing that you know about this book is that it's the story of a man who was swallowed by a fish, right? And if that's the case and you're curious about, man, how do we make sense of that? How are we to kind of understand that? I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the previous messages because we deal with a lot of background. And we talk about who wrote Jonah, why the book of Jonah was written. We talk about the fish. We deal with some of that and get a chance to do that. So I want to encourage you to do that. Uh, but like I said, this week is our fourth week in this series. And so this week, we're going to pick up where we left off in this verse-by-verse study in the book of Jonah. And we're going to open our Bibles today to Jonah chapter 3. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to grab them with me right now, right out of the gate. Take them. Let's go to Jonah chapter 3. And uh, that's where we're going to be picking up this morning. So Jonah chapter 3. And let me just tell you that if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, uh, that is not a problem. We should have some Bibles for you out in those chairs. And Jonah chapter 3, you should be able to find that on page 646 in those Bibles that we have laid out there for you. So go ahead and flip there if you want to. And of course, let me also say that if you are a guest and you don't own a Bible, like you just flat out don't have one, uh, just do us a favor, take one of ours. Okay, make that a gift from us to you. Write your name in it. Uh, we want you to have a Bible. So as you're turning to Jonah chapter 3, let me just give a little bit of a recap just to kind of get our minds back in the story. Uh, so basically, in this series, we started off looking at Jonah chapter 1, and we said that Jonah really foundationally is the story about a man who runs from God. So in Jonah chapter 1, it be, the story begins by uh, God coming to Jonah, and he tells Jonah to go to a place called Nineveh. Uh, but Jonah, rather than listening to God, instead gets up and goes 180 degrees in the opposite direction to a place called Tarshish. And we said one of the things that the, that the book of Jonah teaches us, and we see this in Jonah chapter 1, is Jonah points out to us the downward descent that disobedience has on us. And so the, in Jonah, we see that every step that Jonah takes away from God is a downward step. And the book of Jonah shows us that in chapter 1. And so we talked about that. And one of the things we said in this series is we said the book of Jonah really isn't just about Jonah. Uh, the book of Jonah is intended to be a mirror. It's about each one of us. And what we've said is we said that every single one of us, like Jonah, in one way or another has run from God. Uh, we, have, we have seen what God has wanted and we have decided to go our own way. And that's the human condition. Every single one of us has done that. And we said like Jonah... There is a downward descent to disobedience, that every step that we take away from God is a downward step. And we said in, in the, the second week that we were together and we looked at Jonah chapter 1, we said when we run from God, it has serious effects on us. It has effects on our relationship with God. And so we said one of the things that happens when we run from God is it makes us sluggish. It makes us spiritually lethargic. It makes us spiritually tired. We feel cold and dissonant in our relationship with God whenever we turn from him. And so we saw that in the book of Jonah. We said that when we run from God, it also makes us foolish. 
And we saw that in the book of Jonah. We said when we run from God, oftentimes we make decisions that only later on we'll look back and think to ourselves, man, what, what was I thinking? Why did I do that? And we saw that again in the book of Jonah, chapter 1. And then we said when we run from God, it also makes us selfish. And not only does it kind of render us useless in being used by God in the lives of other people when we run from God, but the other thing that it does is it makes us blind to the decisions that we're making and how it affects those around us. And so we took a look at that in Jonah chapter 1. We talked all about this idea of running from God and the downward descent that it has on us. But then, last week, we looked at Jonah chapter 2. And we said one of the most amazing things about this story in the book of Jonah is that God, rather than killing Jonah when he runs from him, or God, rather than just leaving Jonah alone and letting him do whatever he's going to do and pick someone else, that God goes after Jonah That God chases after and comes after Jonah. And we said that right there, Jonah runs from God, but God comes after Jonah. We said that right there is an incredible description of the central teaching of the Bible, which is, of course, the gospel. We said the gospel in a nutshell is this, that all of us have run from God. Every single one of us at one point or another have turned to our own way and have decided that we we are going to decide what's right for us and that God, we're just going to put what he says off to the side. We've all run from God, but here's the story of the gospel. God's grace is that he comes after us, that he pursues us, that he doesn't just leave us to our own devices, that he doesn't give up on us, that he doesn't stop pursuing us, but he comes after us. And we saw that in Jonah chapter 2, and we said Jonah chapter 2 is all about God's grace. And we said God's grace comes in various unlikely, sometimes unexpected, sometimes unorthodox forms. And so last week we talked about how God's grace in the book of Jonah showed up in a violent storm, how God's grace showed up in a messy fish. And we talked about how God's grace showed up in a second chance that God gave to Jonah. And so we saw all of that last week. We talked about that incredible verse in Jonah chapter 2 where it says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that, that, that God has for them, right? We talked about that. Many of you made big decisions last week to turn from useless idols, to turn from your running from God and to come back to God. And it was awesome. And we got a chance to do that. But this week, as we continue in this series, we're going to pick it up in chapter 3, and we're going to see Jonah get a second chance. Jonah's going to get a second chance to do the thing that God originally asked him to do. And it is awesome what happens. And so let's take a look together. Jonah chapter 3. We'll actually start at the very end of chapter 2, the last verse in chapter 2. So chapter 2, verse 10. Here's what it says. If you've got your Bibles, you can follow with me. It says, And the Lord commanded the fish... And it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. Okay, so last week we talked about this. We said Jonah has been in the, in the belly of this fish for three days and for three nights. And last week I told you that this commandment right here is one of my favorite commandments in the entire Bible. God commands a fish to vomit. It's awesome, right? And so this fish vomits up Jonah, the Bible tells us, onto dry land. And then check this out, chapter 3, verse 1. And then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh. And proclaim to it the message that I give you. And so Jonah obeyed. This time he listens. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and he went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city and it took three days to go through it. All right, so let's just pause there for a second. So here's what happens. Jonah's been in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Uh, Finally, he turns back to God. So God commands the fish to vomit Jonah up. Jonah, Jonah gets vomited up. And then God, the word of the Lord comes to him a second time. And God says, okay, second chance. I want you to go to Nineveh. And the Bible says that Jonah listens. 
And he goes to this great city of Nineveh. And the Bible says it's a great city. Now, I think it probably would do us well if I just took some time, because I haven't had a chance to do this yet in this series, and tell you a little bit about Nineveh. Because I think that it's really important that you and I understand a little bit about Nineveh, not just to understand the circumstance that Jonah is about to walk into, but also for us to sympathize a little bit with why Jonah ran in the first place. All right? So let me tell you a little bit about Nineveh. When God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, God was not pulling any punches. All right? God was telling Jonah to go to one of the biggest, baddest, meanest cities in the entire known world at that time. So just a few things about Nineveh. First off, Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, which back in this time, in Jonah's time, this would have been the most powerful empire in the world, okay? So this place was a mega power. And so God says, Jonah, I want you to go not just to the mega power of the world, but I want you to go to the capital city of the mega power of the world. Okay, so first off, Nineveh was extremely powerful. It was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, the most powerful force in the world, right? But not only that, second thing about Nineveh is that Nineveh, the, the Assyrians, were Israel's number one enemy. And so you got to remember, Jonah was an Israelite man, right? He was a Jewish man. He was a Jewish prophet. And the Assyrians were the Israelites' worst enemy. Most of the, the most terrible things that happened to the Israelites in this time frame happened on account of the Assyrians. And so for Jonah, this was personal, all right? God was saying, I want you to go to the most powerful empire in the world. But then he was saying, I want you to go to your enemies, right? It's very likely that Jonah had family members who would have been killed by the Assyrians. So God says, I want you to go to the most powerful force on the planet. I want you to go to your enemies. And here's the third thing. Not only that, the other thing about the Assyrians and about Nineveh is that they were notorious for their inhumanity and for their monstrous, torturous methods, all right? The one thing that these guys were known for, they were professionals at, was torturing people. That's what the Assyrians and the Ninevites were known for. As a matter of fact, to this day, archaeologists can continue to dig up from ancient Nineveh and from the Assyrian Empire the different military tactics and the different torturous strategies of the Assyrians. In fact, let me just tell you about a few of those things. In fact, right now, today, archaeologists are digging up remnants from Nineveh, from the city that, that uh, Jonah went to, and they're actually on display in the British Museum of London. And so uh, in the British Museum in London, they have a whole section called the Assyrian Reliefs. Let me just show you a, a quick picture. This is actually a hallway. This is totally on my bucket list to go here. But this is the, uh, this is the, the British Museum in London, and this is what they call the Assyrian Relief Hallway. And so all down this hallway, they have what they call reliefs. And these are depictions and pictures of the military strategies and of the torture techniques of the Assyrians. To this day, people are constantly studying uh, the tactics of the Assyrians. And so you can, you can go down this hallway and you can see some of those. Let me just show you a few of them. One of the things that they were known for more than any, anything else was flaying human beings. So let me show you a picture here. Um, this is one of the depictions from those reliefs. You can see they're stretching out uh, these, these men. And what they would do is they would flay them. Now, some of you know what flaying is. It basically means to skin a person alive. So the thing that the Assyrians were the best at, that they were like really, really good at, was uh, flaying people. And they would skin a person alive, and they would pride themselves on how long they could keep that person alive uh, before they finally killed them. 
Um, and some of the other reliefs, in fact, there's a, a depiction of a battle that happened between the Assyrians and the, uh, and the Israelites. It's actually recorded in 1 Kings chapter 18. And here's another depiction. I'll show you this, this next picture. Uh, this is of them taking Jewish survivors from the battle and impaling them on poles. So what they would do is they would take women and children and prisoners of war and survivors, and they would impale them on poles and put them around the city of Nineveh, right? Torturous, monstrous things that they would do. So get this, most powerful people on the planet, all right? Israel's number one enemy, monstrous, inhumane people. And then just to put the icing on the cake, they were entirely proud of it. So proud, such a proud group of people. They would, like I said, they would take these pictures and they would put them all up around the capital city as a way of basically just boasting about these, these, these torturous methods uh, that they would do. As a matter of fact, I'll just quote from a couple of the Assyrian kings and some of the things they said as a way of boasting. So uh, check this out. This comes from a king uh, back in this time named Ashurbanipal. And I want, to, I want you to show you just what he said. This is what he says. He's boasting about what he did to one of the leaders that he held captive. He says, I pierced his chin with my keen hand dagger and through his jaw, I passed a rope and I put a dog chain upon him and I made him occupy a kennel, All right? So this guy's like, I, may, I, treat, I treat this guy like a dog and he's proud of the way that he's torturing him. He's quoting about, this is what I did to these other leaders of these other, uh, these other empires that we have defeated. Here's another quote. This one just made me laugh. This is from one of the Assyrian kings, King Asarhaddon. This is what he says. This is a quote from him. I am powerful. I am all-powerful. I am a hero. I am gigantic. I am colossal. I am honored. I am magnified. I am without equal among all kings. Right? Pretty humble guy. Right? This is a direct quote from this king about himself, right? He's like, I'm awesome. I'm, this, sounds like, this sounds like every Kanye West song I've ever heard, <laughs> like wrapped up into one thing. So get it, right? These guys were powerful. These guys were enemies. These guys were monstrous. And these guys were proud of it, all right? And so God tells Jonah, I want you to go to those people. And, and why did Jonah want God, why did God want Jonah to go to those people? Do you guys remember? If you just glance, let me just remind you. Go back to chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Look at why God wanted Jonah to go to Nineveh. Look at this. In chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh. Now look at this. And preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. So you see why God wanted Jonah to go to Nineveh? You see this? It wasn't to preach God's grace and forgiveness to these people. That's not why God wanted... God, God said, Jonah, the wickedness of these people has come up before me. I can tolerate it no more. Their evil has reached full measure. And so I need you to go to, and go to these people and I need you to preach against them. In other words, he's saying, I want you to go and I want you to pronounce judgment against these people, right? Now it's no wonder then why Jonah didn't want to go. God was asking Jonah to go to the most powerful city, home of Israel's greatest enemies, to the most torturous, monstrous people imaginable who were proud of it and tell them that they were wrong. Just march in the city and just go tell these people that they're wrong and that God's wickedness, that the wickedness of these people has come up before them and that now God is pronouncing judgment. And so the Bible says, Jonah runs, which you and I can probably understand. 
We're actually going to find out in chapter 4 the reason that Jonah really ran is because he didn't want God to forgive these people. We're going to get into that a little bit next week. But anyway, Jonah runs. He doesn't go to Nineveh. But finally, through, you know, a big storm and a giant fish, he decides that he's going to go. And so in verse 4, we see Jonah start to go to Nineveh. So check this out. Verse 4, Jonah began by going a, a day's journey into the great city, proclaiming, check this out, this is Jonah's message, such a simple message that Jonah proclaims in Nineveh, 40 more days and the Ninevites and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's Jonah's message. Very, very simple message. He goes into Nineveh and this is his message. 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overflown. This is a very simple message. In fact, in the Hebrew language, this is only five words. That's all it is. Five words in the Hebrew language, eight words in the English language. Jonah's message to this powerful, monstrous city is just 40 more days and you guys are done. That's Jonah's message. And if you guys were with us in week one, one of the things that we said in this series is we said the book of Jonah is full of irony and it's full of exaggeration. No one acts according to their stereotypes in the book of Jonah. And we're going to see a prime example of that because watch with the most evil, with the most inhumane, most powerful group of people on the earth at that time do in light of this very simple message. So what happens? Look at verse five. This is wild. The Ninevites believed God. This, this little five-word message that Jonah goes around, and the Bible says that the Ninevites believed God, right? How many of the Ninevites believed God? Apparently all of them, right? Because Jonah comes in with this simple message, these hard-hearted, arrogant, torturous, evil people hear this message, and the Bible says that they're like, we believe God. We must be wrong. 40 days and we'll be over turn. So it says the Ninevites believed God and a fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, so Jonah's warning eventually makes it to the king. Look at the king's response. He rose from his throne. He took off his royal robes. He covered himself with sackcloth and he sat down in the dust. So here's the response. Jonah comes in with this simple message to this evil city to this group of torturous, inhumane people, most powerful group in the world. He gives a five-word message, and the entire city is turned upside down. And they believe God, and the Bible says that they put on sackcloth, which, by the way, some of you might know, sackcloth was basically an outward symbol of mourning, right? It was a, a very uncomfortable fabric that a person would wear as an outward symbol of humility, as an outward symbol of grief. And so everyone put on sackcloth and they began to fast, which again was a sign of sincerity. They realized we're wrong, right? And they believe God. And the Bible says that the king, in the very next verse, issues a decree, a nationwide decree. So check this out in verse 7. This is the proclamation that he issued in Nineveh. So the king issues a proclamation. It says, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Don't let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. So the king says, I'm going to issue a decree. And his decree is actually kind of funny because here's the decree. He says, I want everyone to fast and I want everyone to put on sackcloth and cry out to God. And he's like, even the animals. He's like, little Bessie, you need to make a little sackcloth sweater for her and put it on because the animals need to fast too right? And so he, he declares this fast. He says, we need to cry out to God. We need to humble ourselves because we have been doing wrong. And then I want you to notice something again at the very end of verse eight. 
Just look at this really important little sentence. He says, let everyone call urgently on God and let them give up their evil ways and their violence. I want you to pay attention to that little phrase. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Some of you have translations that say, let them turn from their evil ways. Now that word, give up or turn, it's a really important little Hebrew word. It's a simple word, but it's the word shuv, all right? And it's actually a word that was used as a way of talking about walking. It was a term that was used as it related to walking. So here's the term. If you're walking down the road and you realize you're going the wrong way, I'm going the wrong way. What do you do? You shuv and you 180, turn in the opposite direction and you go this way. It's very similar to the New Testament word that we have for repent, right? And so the king says, we've been going the wrong way. We've been doing the wrong thing. And so now we need to put on sackcloth and we need to get in ashes and we need to fast because we need to shuv, right? We need to spiritually turn from the way that we've been going and turn to God. And then in verse nine, look at how he concludes. He says, who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Look at verse nine again. What a verse. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Now, this is my guess. My guess is that for most of us in this room, verse 9 is not going to make it on any of our coffee mugs, right? This is not one of those verses that we feel real comfortable getting tattooed someplace, right? Now, there's certain verses we really like. And there's certain verses that we like to plaster on coffee mugs and we like to get tattooed on places because they speak about characteristics of God that we like, right? And so, for example, we like verses like, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You put that on a coffee mug, you, you know, you, you sketch that onto a pillow, you, you get that tattooed somewhere. We like verses that say, I know the plans that I, that, that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, right? We like stuff like that. We put that on a coffee mug, we get that tattooed someplace, and it's really, really good. And those are great verses. But you see, verse 9, I think for some of us, introduces a problem. In fact, if we're being real honest, for some of you, especially if you're a person who's maybe investigating Jesus and you're not sure what you believe about the whole God thing, this introduces a problem that some of us have, and that's this, that there are different characteristics that the Bible tells us about God that a lot of times we have a really hard time justifying. So let let me just say it this way. In this series, from the very, very beginning, one of the things that I've said is that the book of Jonah all the way through, what it's about is it's about the extravagant grace of God. That's what the book of Jonah is about. It's about God's lavish, extravagant grace, that grace is bigger than you and I can even imagine. And, And the truth is, I think for many of us, we like that. We like talking about God's grace. That's an attribute about God that we're very comfortable talking about. But yet at the same time, when I say that the book of Jonah is all about God's grace, right here, central to the entire book, we have a God who is fiercely angry and who is ready to pronounce judgment on a city and totally destroy it. And so for some of us, we're like, we see that presents a problem to me. That presents a problem because I don't know how to justify these different characteristics of God. I don't know how they work together. Let me say it this way. So um, I want to show you a diagram. This is a diagram that I actually stole from a guy named Dr. Tim Mackey. Uh, Tim Mackey is a Bible scholar in Portland, Oregon, and he showed a very simple diagram I thought was extremely helpful, and I thought maybe I'd show it to you today. But basically, he said this. He said, okay, so when we read the Bible, like so in Jonah chapter 3, we see a characteristic of God made plain to us. That's this. We see God's judgment. 
okay? We see a God in this passage who renders judgment against human behavior. We see a God who is ferociously angry and who's ready to destroy an entire city. We see a God who says, the wickedness of the city has come before me. I could tolerate it no more. And so now I am pronouncing judgment against it. And so we see that, right? But yet at the same time in the Bible and even in the book of Jonah, we see other characteristics of God. And, and namely, we see God's love, right? And so in Jonah, it talks about God's love. In um, the book of 1 John, chapter 3, it tells us that God is love. And so here you have it. You have God's judgment and you have God's love. And for many of us, we have a really, really hard time saying, well, I don't really know how those things work together. They seem like in some ways that they're incompatible. And so a lot of times what we do is we pick one of these characteristics of God and we favor it and we kind of screen out the others, right? And so in our culture, we really like this idea of a loving God. We love that idea. And so we favor that. We, we favor the verses that talk about the compassion of God and the love of God and the grace of God. And we tend to screen out passages that talk about the judgment of God. We tend to screen out passages like Jonah chapter 3, verse 9, God's fierce anger that's going to make these people ultimately perish. You see, here's the thing that I think is a very dangerous, a very, very dangerous conclusion to come to. And I think that we have to be really careful with this. Because what happens sometimes is you and I look at this and we say that these two things are opposite of each other. That these two things are completely unrelated. And so God apparently must just be some kind of bipolar God. And he's like, good cop, bad cop. And I don't know what side of God I'm going to get. It just kind of depends on his mood. And you see, I think one of the big mistakes that we can make is we can tend to think that these two things are opposite of each other, that these two things don't work in association with each other, right? And, And really, if you boil it down, when we believe that these two things are opposite of each other, I think really at the bottom of it, it's just really sloppy thinking. Because just, I just want you to think about it for a minute. Just really think about it. Because we've got to think this through, all right? And just think about it. If I say that I want a God of love, that I accept a God of love, but I don't want a God of judgment, what am I actually saying? Just think about it for a minute. Because what I'm actually saying is, I want a God of love who will turn away and ignore human sin and human suffering and just give us a pass on those things and just accept us in love and never pronounce judgment on the terrible and hurtful things that we do to each other. Now, now is that the most loving thing a God can do? Well, no, 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 no. See, I would argue that the opposite of love is not judgment. The opposite of love is apathy. That's the opposite of love. All right, little thought experiment. Let's imagine that you're walking down the street, all right? And uh, no, no, let's imagine you're in the store, all right? You're in a store, your store of your choice. So you're in Target, or I don't know what your favorite store is, Bass Pro Shop, you know, wherever it is you like to go. And you're in a store, and let's say that there's an older woman, and she has a cart, and in her cart she has her purse, all right? And it's very clear she's by herself. And so you're off at the distance, and you're shopping, and she's shopping. And let's say at some point you see that her cart is unattended, and she's got her back turned, and she's paying attention, like reading the label on something or something like that, right? And let's say that you see these two teenagers. They don't see you. And you see those two teenagers slip behind this woman, get into her purse, and take her wallet, all right? Now, let me ask you, what is the most loving thing that you can do in that scenario? Is the most loving thing you can do to just say, oh, those kids, the teens will be teens, and, and I, oh, I love them. I just love them. Not going to judge them, right? I just care for them. And care. No, 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 no. Look, that's the apathetic thing to do. The loving thing to do is what? It's to render judgment. It's to say, hey, that's wrong. 
That's wrong. And it's to intervene in some way, right? It's to get, it's to get involved, whether it's to speak directly to the teenagers or to call security or whatever it is. That's the most loving thing to do. And it's the most loving thing to do for everybody. It's the most loving thing to do for the woman who's being robbed, right? It's the most loving thing to do for the teenagers. Because what you're saying is you're making a terrible life decision. And if you keep going down this path, you're going to make a wreck of your life. And so the most loving thing to do is to render judgment. And what you can see then is that judgment isn't the opposite of love. Judgment is a function of love. I think about it this way. Let's say you're walking down the street and you see two bigger kids bullying a littler kid. They're just beating him up, taking his money, doing all this stuff. What is the most loving thing you can do if you pass that scenario? Is it to say, oh, I don't judge them. I love those children. <laughs> I'm going to keep walking, right? Is that the most loving thing you can do? No, it's the most apathetic thing you can do. The most loving thing you can do is involve yourself, is to render judgment and say that's wrong. It's the most loving thing you can possibly do. And so you see what the Bible tells us is this. The Bible tells us that God is a God of judgment, not in spite of his love, but precisely because of his love. Because judgment is a function of love. If God loves his creation and loves those that he created, and he cares about them deeply, then that would mean that if something was threatening his creation or something was harming his creation or something was threatening the well-being of his children, that it would evoke his judgment, not in spite of his love, but precisely because of his love. You see, I would argue this. I would even go this far. I would say that if there is no judgment, that there would be no hope for this world. If you think about it, the terrible injustices that we see in this world and the terrible things that we as humans do to each other, if there is no judgment, if there is no accountability, if there is no hope that things are eventually going to be set right, that someone is going to render judgment on the things that happen here, there's no hope for the world. That's what I would argue. But you see, here's the tricky thing. Here's the tricky thing. We need judgment. We need judgment. If there's going to be any hope for the world, if, if there's any hope that things are going to be set straight, we need judgment. But here's the thing. Judgment cannot come from us. And judgment cannot from our, come from our culture. Judgment has to come from a perfect, loving God. Has to. Some of you are like, how did you get to that conclusion? All right, let me, let me, just, let me just try to explain what I mean, because I think you'll agree with me. Judgment cannot come from us. Why can't judgment come from us? Because here's what I know, and you know this too. You know this too. That you and I are notoriously, notoriously disproportionate and duplicitous in our relationship with judgment. True or false? You and I are notoriously disproportionate and duplicitous in our relationship with judgment. You don't believe me? All right, let me give you a little, let me give you a little illustration just to get your mind going. A real simple one. I'll use, I'll use driving as an example because I don't know about you, but for those of us who drive in this room, for me, my humanity comes out most clearly when I'm behind the wheel, right? When I'm driving. There's a side of me, I don't care how Christian I think I am, there is a side of me that comes out when I am driving that I am not proud of. My guess is, you're probably the same way too, right? And so when I drive, I have certain pet peeves. There's certain things that, that just irritate me to no end about the way that other people drive. And my guess is you have your pet peeves too, and I'd actually really like to hear them because I think it's kind of fun to talk about. And so afterwards in the cafe, come find me. We can commiserate together. But let me just give you three. You might, you might share these with me. Let me give you three, three massive pet peeves I have when I'm driving, right? Here's number one, and this is in no particular order. Number one, irritates me to no end is when people don't use their blinker. Man, that drives me crazy. It drives me crazy. So I'm driving down the road and someone in front of me decides they're going to turn left and they don't use their blinker, but they just go ahead and turn left. In my mind, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, man, seriously? 
Like apparently, you know you're going to turn left, but there's no reason for you to communicate your intentions to everybody else, right? Because it's so hard to do this. This irritates me to know. And I'm like, just use your turn signal, right? Bothers me. All right, so that's number one. Number two, this irritates me to no end, is, okay, so you guys know at crosswalks and in parking lots, pedestrians have the right of way, right? That's just, everyone knows that. Pedestrians have the right of way. I think it's especially because I have kids now. When I'm at the grocery store and I'm walking through the parking lot and there is a car that, that does not yield to pedestrians but somewhere thinks that they have the right of way, it drives me insane. Right, just to show you a little bit about my, self, my self-righteousness and my arrogance. If, I, if I'm walking uh, through a parking lot and there's a car that's not going to yield to me, like you can tell they're just going to keep going, I will not stop. I will just keep walking. I'm like, hit me. I don't care because I have the right of way, right? I am willing to put my health and my safety on the line to make a point. That's how self-righteous and how arrogant I am. In fact, I get so mad about this one. I'm like totally on a soapbox right now. But I get so mad about this one that sometimes when I'm in a parking lot and I'm yielding, I'm yielding because there's a pedestrian that has the right of way, sometimes they'll stop and wait for me. And I'll wave them on like, no, no, no. You have the right of way. And you know what people do sometimes? They go, thanks, like this. They give me the thanks. And that makes me so mad. And the reason it makes me mad is because I'm like, don't thank me, right? You have the right of way. This isn't your privilege. This is your right. I should be thanking you, you know? And it just makes me mad, all right? All right, number three. Number three in this one. Ooh, all right. And it happens in Montrose more than anywhere I've ever been. But you know how, you know how um, on a busy road, if you're in the left-hand turn lane, there's a green light, a green arrow that, that signals you to turn left. Okay, so what happens when that turns green? Well, inevitably, the cars that are lined up to turn left, uh, about five of them will turn left on the green. But then the light turns yellow. And what happens then? Well, then there's another two or three cars, right? And they ride the bumper of those cars that went through on the green Almost as if they're like, well, I was in the middle of the intersection. I couldn't do anything, so I'm just going to go ahead and turn left anyway, right? And that's okay, but then there's another category. And there's another group of cars, right? One, maybe two cars after that, that the light is clearly red, right? And they just are like, I don't even care about the law. I don't care about where you have to be or anyone. I'm just going to turn left, right? And they just go ahead and they turn left on that red. And if you're a person that's in the cross traffic and your light turns green, is that not the most infuriating thing? And what do you do? What do you do? I know what you do because I do it. You make a little six foot advance, right? As a way of saying, what the heck are you thinking? Right? It's my turn to go. And it drives me crazy. So here's my point. Here's my point. And you have your pet peeves too. Here's my point. I am incredibly disproportionate in my desire, my desire for judgment in those scenarios. Because let's be honest, when people do those things, I don't want justice. I'm not like, oh, they need a traffic violation for the thing that they've done. I hope they get a ticket. You know, that's not what I want. I want them dead. <laughs> right? I, maybe, maybe not dead, right? Maybe not dead. But I, I'm, like, I'm like, I want your driver's license revoked. And I want, I want the state to force you to sit down and write me a letter of apology, right? That's what I want. That's what I want. So my relationship, and that's what, let's be honest, that's what you want. And, and that, my relationship with, judge, with justice is completely disproportionate. But listen, listen, it's not just disproportionate. It's also duplicitous. Because everything I just told you, 
I have done every single one of those things, right? <laughs> this week, I've done them all. And when I'm in a hurry or when I got to go somewhere and I have to turn left on the red, I'm like, I got to go. I don't care what anyone else thinks, right? And, and, and here's the thing, just to, just to prove my point to you. Here's the thing. When other people get mad at me for doing those things, when they shake their fist or they, you know, whatever they do, whenever they give me their hand gesture or they yell at me, whenever they do that to me, guess what I'm thinking? I'm not thinking, you're right. I'm doing that thing that bothers me. So that's not what I'm thinking. You know what I'm thinking? Who the heck are you? You know, what do you think? And I'm, don't you understand? I'm in a hurry. Come on, man, right? And I'll justify myself. And here's what I'm saying. You and I cannot, and that's just with driving. I'm not talking about forgiveness. I'm not talking about bigger, more serious things that we face in life. The truth is we need justice but in judgment, but it can't come from us because you and I, our judgment, our ability to judge is terribly flawed. We are duplicitous. And so we desire grace for us deeply, but we desire more than judgment for other people. And so we cannot be the ones in which judgment comes from. And listen, our culture can't be the one in which judgment comes from because you guys know what a culture is, right? A culture is just an accumulation of really messed up people. And so you take this same principle, the disproportionate and duplicitous sense of judgment that we have, and you, and you uh, subscribe that to a group of people and what you end up getting is you get entire countries, entire nations that come to really, really weird conclusions about what's right and wrong. This is how you get Nineveh, who says it's completely okay for us to treat our enemies inhumanely and in, in, in these terrible ways. This is how you get things like Nazi Germany. This is how you get things like racial cleansing, ethnic cleansing, and you get racial slavery. This is how you come to these decisions. It's because our, judge, our ability to judge as a culture and as individuals is broken. And so we need a God. We need a God who's perfect. We need a God who's loving. And we need a God who can render judgment perfectly. And the Bible tells us precisely that. The Bible tells us in Jonah chapter 3 and in other places that God is a God that renders judgment against human behavior. Not in spite of his love, but because it's a function of his love. But because he loves. Now, now that's great, but here's another problem. The other problem is this. If God renders judgment, on anyone who has ever caused harm to his perfect creation, then we're all doomed. Because every single one of us are contributors to this. And so what hope is there for us then? And this is where I love where Jonah comes back in, because I want to tell you what the goal of God's judgment is. According to Jonah, we actually see it in verse 10. So take a look at verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented. And he did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. See what the Bible says? The Bible says that God came to Nineveh and he said, your wickedness has come up before me 40 more days and you guys are done. And the Bible says that the, the Ninevites and the Assyrians, that they decided to shuv, that they turned and they said, we've done wrong and we need to fast and pray and we need to seek God. And the Bible says that what happened as a result is that God relented is that God, instead of evoking this judgment on them, he turned from it, and instead he gave them compassion. And there's a word for that, by the way. The word for that is grace, right? And so when you think about, about this, this whole relationship between God's love and God's judgment and God's grace, what the Bible teaches us is this, is that because God is a loving God, a function of God's love is his judgment. But the goal of God's judgment isn't to smash us and it isn't to destroy us and it isn't to kill us. The goal of God's judgment is to turn us back to him and back to his compassion in his grace. That is the goal 
of God's judgment. That is why he proclaims this to us. Matter of fact, I don't know if you guys know this, but that right there, that's God's MO. That's God's MO. That whenever you and I turn from, from the ways that we run from God and we turn back to God and we shoot and we say, I repent, God. I repent for the things that I've done. We will find grace every single time because that's God's desire. In fact, let me just show you a couple verses to kind of make that point. Jeremiah 18, 7 to 8 says this. It says, if at any time, this is God speaking, if at any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and I will not inflict on the disaster that I planned. God says this. This is God's MO. This is an unchangeable characteristic of God. That when we repent, God shows grace. That when we turn from the ways that go against what God wants from us, we find grace. Check this out, Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. Second Chronicles seven 14, I'll give you one more. Then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and I will restore their land. See, God, God's goal in judgment is not to smash us, it's not to destroy us, it's to lead us back to his grace. And I know that, not just because the Bible tells us, but I also know that because of the book of Jonah. Just think about this for a minute. If God wanted to destroy the Ninevites, why would he go through all this trouble of sending Jonah? Why, why, would, why would Jonah runs from God, God goes after Jonah, goes through all this trouble to bring, why would he do that if he had no hope that the Ninevites would turn from their way? He could have just killed the Ninevites if he wanted to, but he didn't. Why? Because God's judgment is an invitation to repentance. I think all of us understand this. If you grew up in a home where you have loving parents, a loving mom and a loving dad, and I know uh, many, for some of us, unfortunately, maybe you didn't grow up in a home like that. Maybe you grew up in a really messed up house. But listen, if you grew up in a home where your parents genuinely loved you and cared about you, isn't it true that there are times when pronouncements of judgment against you are invitations for repentance? I know that's true. With my kids, that's true. I have, you know, three little kids. One is just a newborn, so she can't do any harm. Plus, she's a girl, so she could never do any harm. And then I got these two boys, right, who are just sometimes they act like spawns of Satan. And so sometimes when I'm driving down the road, they're in the back seat and they're fighting and they're being mean to each other and they're doing terrible things. They're not listening to me. And so what do I do as their father? I pronounce judgment, right? I say, boys, if you don't stop, when we get home, no, di- no, no snack, right to bed, right? Now, what is that pronouncement of judgment? That pronouncement of judgment is an invitation to repentance. My hope is not that I have to execute that judgment, but I'm ready to and I'm willing to. But my hope is that they'll turn from their wicked ways, right? And that they will find grace that they can find for me. And this is God's heart as well. So we look at these things, God's grace, God's love, and God's judgment. And for many of us, we're like, I don't know how those, those things work together but we can see clearly that all of those things are connected and they're not contradictory to each other, but they are supplementary to each other. And listen, there is no place that those three characteristics of God make more sense and converge into crystal clarity than on the cross. Because if you think about it, it's on the cross where both God's love, God's judgment, and God's grace are 100% fully explained. 100% of God's love is demonstrated on the cross. God so loved the world that he gave his son, right? And we see that. 
God, we see God's judgment on the cross, that sin, our sin, needs to be accounted for. And there is a punishment associated with how we run from God. And so the judgment of the cross, we see that God's wrath was poured out on his son, Jesus Christ. But at the same time, the cross is also a picture of God's grace. That in this act of Jesus Christ taking on our sin, that grace has been offered to us. And you guys, I think in Jonah chapter 3, we actually have for us one of the most beautiful pictures of what it means to be a Christian. We really have a great picture of it here because what does the king of Nineveh do when he hears this judgment? The Bible says that the king of Nineveh got off of his throne the very seat that gave him the right to pronounce judgment. And he took off his robes, his kingly robes, the very garments that gave him the right to pronounce judgment. He put on sackcloth and he got in ashes. He humbled himself. And basically what he did is he got off of his throne He gave up his right to determine what's right and wrong. And he said, God, I'm submitting myself to you. You are the judge of my life. You are the one who calls the shots. And you guys, this is what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is I'm gonna get off my throne to determine what's right and wrong for myself in my life, in my habits, in my sexuality, in my finances, in my marriage, in every aspect of my life. I'm gonna get off my throne I'm going to take off my royal robes and I'm going to humbly submit myself to the king of the universe. And that's what it means to be a Christian. And the Bible says when we do that, we find grace. We find grace. And so you see God's love, God's judgment, and God's grace. They're not contradictory, but they work together. Let's pray together. Well, Father, I just want to say thank you so much for your word to us this morning. And thank you so much just for the the truth that you've given us, God, that you are a God of perfect love. And it's because of your love that that one of the functions is your judgment. Those things aren't contradictory to each other. But Father, they work together in association. They're two sides of the same coin. And God, the truth is that if, if, if it wasn't for your judgment, there would be no hope for this world. But God, I'm so thankful that it doesn't stop there. I'm so thankful that you are a God of grace. I'm so thankful that when we come to you and we humble ourselves, that when we turn to Jesus Christ and we, we invest our hope in him, that we find grace, that we don't get what we deserve for the times that we have turned from you. But Father, instead, Jesus Christ has absorbed our punishment and now we can freely have a relationship with you. So God, I thank you for that because that's the only hope that we have. Uh, the truth is we're terrible at, at making judgment calls in the lives of others and the lives of ourselves. Father, we're duplicitous. God, we are disproportionate. And because of that, Father, we need to submit ourselves to you. We need to, we need to trust that you're the judge and that when we turn to you, Father, that when we, when, we, when we turn from our ways and turn to your way, that we'll find the grace that you desire to give us. And so as we go from this place, God, I pray that you would help us this week to get off our thrones. Help us to get off our, our throne and give up the right that we feel we have to determine what's best for ourselves and help us to submit to you, to believe, God, that what you want is best. And that ultimately, when we, when we turn to you, we turn to grace. And so, Father, thank you so much for your word to us this morning, and thank you so much for this powerful truth. We pray that as we go from this place, you would help us to live humbly, to submit ourselves to you, and, Father, to allow you to be the king of our lives who sits in the throne of our hearts. We want to ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.